Hello, and welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast by women in politics, about women in politics. I'm your host, Anna Greenberg, and I'm a managing partner at Greenberg, Quillen, Rosner Research, a Democratic polling firm. I work for Democratic candidates for office and for progressive advocacy groups. I started this podcast after the 2016 campaign to highlight the really amazing work women do in politics. To date, we've talked to women reporters, women conducting opposition research, women who recruit women to run for office, and more. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at she said Paul Pod. And if you listen to us on iTunes, please leave a rating and a review. Help us spread the word about the amazing work these women do. Today we have two guests who are going to talk about their work in the U.S. Senate, specifically their work as a chief of staff to a U.S. senator. We'll hear from Tamara Lozado, who served as chief of staff to both Senator Jay Rockefeller and then Senator Hillary Clinton. Tamara currently leads government relations at the Pew Charitable Trust. We'll also hear from Bianca Ortiz-Wertheim. She serves as Senator Tom Udall's chief of staff. She's only the second Latina to hold this position in history. Tamara and Bianca are going to talk to us about what it's like to work in one of the most exclusive clubs in politics, the U.S. Senate, and give us the details on what exactly a chief of staff does, which as far as I can tell is just about everything. Let's get started. Tamara and Bianca, so thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm so excited to talk to you about being a Senate chief of staff. Now, there are only 100 senators, and it means there's only 100 chiefs of staff, so it's a pretty rarefied job. And I'll bet most people have no idea what you do. So tell me, what do you do as a chief of staff? Tamara, would you start? Just about everything. I mean, for one, to start with just the picture of a Senate office and staff, a senator has anywhere from 30, 40, 50, 60 staff members, always a headquarters office in one of the Senate office buildings on Capitol Hill, and usually a number of so-called state offices or district offices where two, three, or four staff might be in each one of those offices. So overall, a chief of staff to a senator is in essence a CEO of kind of a medium-sized business hmm. and is in, the, in, in terms of responsibility is also the CFO, so the chief financial officer. One oversees a version of human resources, so to just think of the business model, you are running the plant and the factory. Mm-hmm. You are responsible for compensation bonuses, family leave policies. You're responsible for managing a very big budget and, uh, and with the Senate rules, a complicated form of, of, of making budget decisions. What varies for chiefs of staff is the degree to which a senator draws on, the chi- on that particular chief, and I had the fortune, having been a chief, to Senator Rockefeller of West Virginia and to Senator Clinton of New York, and I went up the ladder through the policy route as opposed to through campaigns and through sort of campaign mechanics. So I played a very central role in most of the policy decisions, drawing on our policy staff. But nonetheless, you are the air, you're the air traffic controller, you're the orchestra conductor, you're the CEO, and you're everything else mm-hmm. I just said, which basically means that we 100 think of it as mission impossible. I'm sure. <laughs> now, Bianca, you were running Senator Udall's district office when he hired you as chief of staff. So you came up through this, through politics and district or state politics versus starting with policy. So did that, and I know this was a new job for you two mm-hmm. years ago, did that influence how you thought about the job and you did the job? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, working for Senator Udall from New Mexico, the senior senator from New Mexico, uh, I started with him when he became a senator in 09. And so as state director, what I did was uh, kind of building on what Tamara was, said is, you know, you manage the offices, you're opening offices, you're looking for office space. I mean, from that level of operations 
to actually looking at the local politics and the statewide politics, working with constituents and making decisions that no one else can or wants to make. Mm -hmm. um, Do you have an example of a, a tough decision you have to make as a chief? That well, isn't I, violating anything that's confidential? <laughs> that isn't violating. Well, I think that there are um, moments that you want to have decisions um, organically be made, whether it's within and internally, so consensus building within your staff, but there are times when you have to just make the decision, whether it's um, you know moving forward with a lease, whether it's not moving forward with a lease, uh, whether a, a schedule looks right for the senator on uh, where he's traveling in the state and um, what you know what he what type of meetings he's gonna gonna do, um, but I do think that there are uh, you know decisions in the as chief of staff moving from the state office to the DC office. I mean I think that you're constantly having to look at the state and make sure that you're prioritizing what's happening there and the issues happening in New Mexico, for my, in my example, as opposed to the, you know, what's happening in DC. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's challenging, especially, I mean, if you work for a senator who is a national leader, either as a voice in some particular policy area or as kind of a leader in the leadership, it must be hard to strike that balance between the state and the national. I think about Senator Clinton, and you were with her during 9-11, so obviously New York, at, particularly at that moment, required you know, a really intense focus, but she's also someone who has you know, a national voice as First Lady and running for the Senate. This is before she ran for president, of course. How do you strike that balance? Well, that's an interesting example because, yes, when 9-11 came along and New York was the main set of people that were attacked in the main area that was um, most damaged, we basically had to set up what I think of as an ICU for mm. New York. I mean, we were to work um, on every, every possible way of helping New York recover, heal, even figure out what that meant, um, what kind of funding did we want, what kind of assistance did we want, et cetera, et cetera. So that certainly, if you think of Hillary having been elected the November before that September of uh, 2001, um, New Yorkers certainly got to know her a whole mm -hmm. lot better than um, uh, than they got to know her as someone who just recently moved to New York. But interestingly, as I reflect on it, I think that Hillary knowing the nation as well as she knew it, and certainly in this case, knowing disaster assistance the way she knew it as being a former first lady, mm, there were many times when, when that her own experience, whether it be in policy or what she saw the White House handle or her husband handle, drew on what she knew works. She even said, I remember at that point, that we will be working on the post 9-11 recovery and healing for as long as we're in the Senate. And it is true, the, our very last day when she became Secretary of State, we were still probably working on mm -hmm. the next round of health benefits for first responders uh, and on and on and on. Uh, and if you really think about 9-11, it was a national issue. Absolutely. So this was an attack on America. So she got to contribute in that way. And um, that actually translated into, into her becoming more interested in national security. So mm -hmm. two years after that, she went on the Armed Services Committee, mm -hmm. which was a big part of her you know, successful Senate career. Mm -hmm. 
So it's interesting. I mean, what I think people probably don't know about senators in general, they're used to seeing them on TV voting, right? But that there is policy and making policy and, and taking votes, but there's also taking care of your state and managing a staff in the state to make sure that you're dealing with everything from constitu individual constituents who have a problem that needs to be solved to, you know, energy policy, uh, you know, thinking about uh, energy in New Mexico or water, right? Some things that uniquely affect the state. And you have to do admin and HR and budgets um, and that you're managing, as you say, almost like a small company. Um, so it's- Such as type quintuple A personalities, <laughs> right, which everybody exactly. thinks they're right, you know, <laughs> right. and they might know more than the senator. Right, so I mean, it's really, being a chief of staff, in my view, is like a pretty incredible job, because it's admin, it's um, policy expertise, um, and then it's sort of managing the person, uh, it's, um, and, then ma and then managing what's happening in, in the state. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bianca, you've been doing this for two years. How do you figure out how to, I mean, yeah, you were lucky enough to sort of have worked, you know, your way up through the office, not suggesting once you become chief of staff, all of a sudden it's easy, but you saw a lot, right? Um, but you sort of come in from the state. So how was it finding your sea legs and figuring out how to strike that balance? Um, it was actually quite difficult. Um, uh, the the non-traditional path to come into D.C. as state director, I found uh, uh, Senator Moran's chief actually is state director, so he and I actually had a lot of uh, good times talking about mm -hmm. being state director and what it means to being chief of staff. But, it, you know, one of the things coming into D.C. at this phase in my life, um, it, uh, it required a lot of, of support. It required a lot of um, trying to recreate your, your domestic life right, that you worked for 20 years trying to create, whether it's your, your routine and whatnot, and that is not an insignificant piece to dealing with Right, the, it's a 24-7 job when Congress right. is in session. Right, and so, you know, going back to, you know, making those decisions that no one wants to make, I mean, part of it is dealing with stuff that's happening real time in your state, in your example of 9-11, and, and something, you know, that happens in the West a lot are wildfires. So natural disasters that you have to be alert to to make sure that does your you know does your boss miss a vote? Mm -hmm. Does your boss miss a week of votes because your state needs him or her to actually address some of these um, issues that uh, are really uh, you know in front of people's minds that you know assistance and and sent uh, emergency operations centers and whatnot. So it's a really, uh, you know, you're, you have to continue to look at uh, what's happening in the state, measure it with what's happening in D.C. But so coming to D.C. as a um, state director and not having ever lived outside of New Mexico, except for my time in college, um, really, you know, was different. Mm -hmm. It was a, it was a challenge. It reminds me, I interviewed. Um, uh, Rosa DeLauro, Congresswoman, mm -hmm. but also my stepmother, as everyone knows, uh, uh, for the first podcast. And she told me, and I had no idea, that when she came to D.C. to be Chris Dodd's chief of staff, now she had been a campaign manager, she hadn't mm -hmm. been a state director, she'd mm -hmm. worked in the mayor's office in New Haven, that it was the first time she'd been in Washington since she was on a high school tour. I had no idea, and she said her learning curve was very steep. And I, I'm glad you mentioned mentoring, because I think um, for her, there were various senators like Senator Biden, for example, who really helped her and mentored her as a chief of staff 
it sounds like you also have other chiefs or maybe even other senators. And I know from Al Franken's new book, (laughs) You're Famous Again, that you really helped him. He's my publicist. Yes. (laughs) That you really helped him figure out, I mean, this is sort of a different you as a chief helping him as a senator because you had the fairly unique experience of, you know, working for Senator Clinton, who was an unusual senator in, in many ways. Um, so tell me about mentoring and, and who helps you figure all this out. Well, I think that one of the untold stories in D.C. is the strength of the Women's Chiefs um, Organization, the bipartisan and the Democratic. Um, there, That was something that I did not expect and I was um, incredibly grateful for. Uh, you know, Maura Keefe is someone who really reaches out, Lori um, Rubner and some of these more veteran chiefs who are out there, um, uh, Beth Jafari, who's with Cornyn. Um, so I think that type of being able to reach out and, and ask questions is really important. The other piece that was really new to me was coming to DC and everybody wants to do coffee with you, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's a thing. I was like, this is really a thing, coffee in DC. <laughs> and I'm a coffee drinker, not shy. But one of my um, one of my great experiences is when Tom Nagel, the former chief of staff, one of the former chiefs of staff for Tom Udall, um, connected uh, Tamara and I, and um, Tamara gave me was gracious enough to did you have coffee visit, to meet with the deer in the headlight? Did no, you? I went to see her off. I went to see her, but she was brand new and. There was a lot of nodding of the head, and I said, oh, boy, none of this is going to sink in, because <laughs> she was brand new. Brand new. And, uh. and so I was like, wow, you know. But it was also intimidating. I mean, mm-hmm. we have, I mean, here in front of me is this incredible, the gold standard for chiefs of staff, right? The gold standard for a woman chief of staff, um, you know, with uh, been on the Hill, been involved in campaigns, Rockefeller, Clinton. And now her, her current position is actually um, integrating all of this together and distilling it for information and helping all of us learn. And so I'm like, wow, what in the world am I going to ask her? <laughs> you didn't even know I what didn't you didn't know. know. I didn't know what I didn't know, <laughs> exactly. So today I thought was a really cool opportunity, and I don't know if that's mm-hmm. something you'd want. I mean, I thought I would ask you the question I should have asked. I would love for you to ask uh, Tamara a question. What would that be? Now that you can complete your sentences. Now that I can complete my sentences. Um, Well, I think that, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing about um, the Trump administration and the changeover in his chief of staff. And so we have uh, somebody like General Kelly, John Kelly, who has accepted the appointment of chief of staff. And there have been some articles about what makes the chief of staff good, what you know, how, um, what are some of the principles that you might follow, and um, what was said by James Baker, former chief of staff to um, President Reagan and uh, President Bush, is you can either focus on the chief or you can focus on the of staff, and those who focus on the of staff tend to do quite well. So, what would fall under the of staff? I genuinely think it's a hybrid. I mean, for one, my my philosophy in that the senator is always the boss, and um, they don't become a senator as I as I have often reminded our staff accidentally. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when let's say there's a senator that we, that we profoundly disagree with or is opposing our legislation or something like that, somebody will make some some cut about that senator, you know, either being an idiot or a doofus or whatever. I said, you know, they did not get here <laughs> by being an idiot. Right. So we have to keep in mind what got them here. 
the other philosophy I've had is that um, I've always tried to focus on what you can change and what you can't change. So um, I certainly knew enough about both of my bosses when I was when I became their chief of staff. I actually started with Hillary as an experiment to be her transition director. I promised her three months and eight years, and four months later, I <laughs> shut her office down. So mm. she got to actually even you know try me out, and I went up the ladder with Senator Rockefeller. But there are just some things, like in a marriage, like in any form of relationship that you can't change. There are some things you can tweak, some ways you can suggest um, improvements. But I feel that, that, that the core of the job is to create an organization and a structure that essentially is productive and efficient and happy and encourages honesty. And like you said before, to, whatever extent um, a consensus can be reached. So for example, just related to state directors, I've always pressed my Washington staff to really listen to the case workers and the state staff because we sometimes have gotten our best ideas from just Mrs. McGillicuddy coming in and telling us about the way the Medicare claims process um, has taken forever and that, and bingo, we need to do something about that. Uh, so that, and I've, I, one of my favorite stories is when we were talking about immigration reform. And one of, one of the things I, I always try to encourage Hillary, and, and I'd like to say I think it is her nature, is um, as, as much as we can include anyone that should be so-called in the room or in the process of, of considering an issue should be. So I reminded her uh, when we were going to discuss the uh, positions on immigration reform when it was hot when she was in the Senate, uh, that um, we had a caseworker fluent in Spanish, and this is a post 9-11 world, and um, she was dealing with the, you know, a, a, the multiplier effect of immigration cases. And so I reminded her that Luz, back in our New York headquarters, knows an awful lot about what she has seen that might have to do with the way to think about immigration policy. She said, let's include her. So she was on the speakerphone, for a staff meeting with the legislative director, the policy assistant, someone from our press shop, myself. And at one point, Hillary looked at the phone and said, Luz, anything to offer? And Luz had this absolutely wonderful insight. And, and with Hillary Clinton as a senator saying, hadn't thought of that. So I, so I think to, to, to go to what I think is the day-to-day -day bulk, it's, it's, it's coming up with a structure deciding what the boss has to know, what what really ought to be delegated, what decisions the chief can make on her own, in my case, um, and, uh, and, a, and a system for really making the best use of this incredible talent that you have. And I think that really is, that's a, I mean, that's so true. I mean, knowing the chief, the senator, and knowing your staff, um, is a, it is a hybrid, and I do, when I, when I first started, I mean, one of the things that a lot of folks would say is, well, there are three items for a chief of staff to know, your state, your senator, and the Hill. And so I was like, whoa, okay, so I've got two of the three. <laughs> and so I really had to work hard on that third, you know, that third piece. But, you know, having such an incredible team here in D.C., I lean on them a lot, and they carry me a lot when it comes to the Hill. I know the boss really well. 
um, um, he and I are very simpatico. <laughs> and so we, you know, he has this incredible love for the state. He has an incredible history of public service. It's something that I've known of. I've worked with him over the years. Um, even when I was with the American Cancer Society, this is, you know, years and years ago, um, working on protecting the tobacco settlement fund that New Mexico was one of the states who, but that was done, that, that litigation was um, in New Mexico was run by Senator Udall when he was attorney general. So, you know, having known his, his path, known his, his value system, it really matters because it becomes second nature when yeah. you, when you are driving your team, when you're driving the organization, you know, you're speaking for him and the values that they, they bring. It also sounds like you have to build up real trust um, and that really close relationship. And um, I was thinking as I was reading a bit about you <laughs> uh, that you had some medical issues and that Senator Clinton you know, would come see you in the hospital, um, even unannounced, just kind of show up. And I was thinking about when my stepmother Rosa had cancer uh, had ovarian cancer in 1986. It was at the beginning of Senator Dodd's reelect, and he suspended the campaign until she could come back and run it. Uh, and I think about how long your relationship goes, Senator Udall. It sounds like that is really moving, isn't it? I, I re- it is an incredible story. And but it, everything you're saying really talks about this bond and this trust, and really having to know your senator really, really well. I assume that leads to better outcomes for everybody. If that's the, what the relationships. Yeah, like. and I think the discussion about Kelly and President Trump is more a discussion of can't Kelly change Trump? Mm-hmm. Um, so I doubt that was the handshake. <laughs> <laughs> right. The handshake was probably over. Um, de-chaosing you know, the White House and having clearer job descriptions and again back to the structure but but it, you know the core role for the chief of staff ideally is to like the senator and for the senator to like you and for the senator to see you as a filter and an organizer for the information advice and activities that that senator is going to spend his or her time on from the schedule to the way staff are paid uh, decision-making mm-hmm. process, mail getting answered. I, one, I would say one issue over all my years of, that I think really pertains to current times is the speed of, of at which um, people expect because of technology and cable and the profusion of, of cable stations, expect a senator, senator to have a position on an issue right. or to have an opinion. I mean, I think some things it ought to be pretty obvious, but um, that pressure, it just makes, I think it makes everyone's job on Capitol Hill much harder, including all 535 members of Congress. I mean, one shouldn't have to make a decision about the Iran nuclear deal without leading something, (laughs) without considering maybe time with experts. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is not a put the microphone Mm -hmm. on your face, you know, when you get off the the, um, heart subway train. But it really speaks to then how important your job is of filtering information, making sure what they get what they need that's comprehensive enough to not sound like you don't know what you're talking about, but also is efficient enough so that you're not overloaded. So that you, you as chiefs and a former chief play this role, of, it's not a gatekeeper, but it's sort of like, the, as you say, the filter to make sure that they know what they're doing. Right. I think that you want to be able to, um, in with second nature, and also your team, your legislative director, your comms director, they too have that um, spidey sense of mm-hmm. knowing what type of information 
the boss is going to need in order to either make a decision or be prepared for a hearing or be prepared on a current event. Um, but sometimes you don't have that luxury. So you have to be able to um, have the discipline and have the uh, wherewithal to say, you know what, we are A, not going to respond until we have more information, mm-hmm. or B, I think we're ready to respond, or we can, or this is, you know, this is this is within our wheelhouse. So we've been, you know, we've worked on this this um, area, or we have the foundations for it. So it's it's a not an easy response, but it can be thoughtful. But I agree. I think that there's this expectation that, you know, we will govern by Twitter, <laughs> and govern by tweets, and you just, you know, you can't. Um, you you know it's yes you can be responsive and you have to be responsive to the to modern day information gathering and I think that you have you know that's difficult. Mm-hmm. So I would be remiss given that this is a podcast on women in politics and with a particular focus on women who do the work of politics. I mean I obviously would be happy to talk to elected officials and others, but I really want to highlight the really incredible work that women do a little bit more behind the scenes. Um, even though we are in a different place than we were in uh, 1980 when my stepmother became Chris Dodd, Chief of Staff, there are still very few women senators and not that many women chiefs, though I actually don't know how many there are now. Bianca, you might, you might know. Um, I can you can, you can you. count. While I'm talking, count in your head <laughs> how many there are. And I assume that when you were a chief, especially for you know, Rockefeller, there weren't very many. Um, does it matter? Like, does it matter if there are women chiefs of staff or not? Well, to go to what Bianca said earlier, there is a culture that is, that is different, I think, when with women members in the House and in the Senate. I certainly saw it through Hillary and Mikulski and even Snow and, um, and Kay Bella Hutchinson when she was when, not, when Hillary and Hutchinson overlapped of Texas. There, I, I think there is a difference between the way women support one another. Um, I. I, uh, I, I just tragically turned 60, so I, I go back that far. But I, I have not experienced to think of discrimination. I feel Hillary has experienced plenty of misogyny and sexism Absolutely. and everything else. So I, I think that, that, that those that are in elected positions do that. But I think at the chief's level, um, one of the benefits is that, like Bianca said, with these other chiefs, literally, who bosses have absolute opposite points of view of her boss, uh, policy points of view, there is this tradition of supporting one another and spending time together. And I, when I even was promoted to being Jay's legislative director in the 80s, that was a very rare position for a woman to have. And it was very rare for um, senators, chiefs of staff to be female. Um, but we, we definitely created a um, brown bag lunch once a month, and I got to know very conservative senators, chiefs of staff, and became very, very good friends with them. Uh, so, and I think I think if you were to ask any um, uh, woman member, certainly in my eight years with Hillary, the women senators got mm-hmm. together, and a couple times a year, R and D women senators got together, um, and. Uh, and, cer- and certainly the female chiefs would get together both amongst the same party or across the aisle. Mm-hmm. The other th- I mean, this is kind of broader philosophical thinking about being a woman as a chief of staff or in any position. 
there is there is that nature nurture you know debate of whether you come out any differently as a woman but there's a there there is a lot of emphasis that as a woman you're presumably going to be a nurturer mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and i happen to think that's a very good skill i think that i think the happier staff are the better job they're going to do for for the boss it's a very stressful job whether you're answering the mail or answering the phones or doing the casework you know for healthcare cases or veterans cases or whatever and so it's important to apply some of what's learned your your maybe your your more maternal instincts sure well i mean certainly i think that Occupational research would suggest that having more women involved in decision making means that people are more likely to operate by consensus. And Bianca, you talked about the importance of reaching consensus within within the office on how your boss should should do things. And so it may be, you know, that's yeah, not, not. I don't being know. Soft. It's right. Being... I don't know if it's nurture so much, but certainly, you know, it could be nurture or mothering, or it could be more listening. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a. Um, everybody comes to the table with various lenses, your experience, whether you are, um, it's gender, it's um, uh, ethnicity, it's being from a rural state, it's socioeconomic, it's education, are you Ivy League or public edu- publicly educated, um, your type of household you grew up in. And so I think that knowing that my staff and whom you know whatever groups that we're pulling together to gather information and get gain insight is that you're going to have a much better decision if you have somebody who's talking to you from their perspective and you're listening and you're gathering that feedback you're going to have a much better decision at the end of the day if you bring people around the table who um, think like you, look like you, do as you do, mm-hmm. you're going to have um, a really, um, you're going to have a bad decision. Uh, mm-hmm. And when it affects a lot of constituents, when what you're doing is, is public service and what you're doing is making a difference for families, for veterans, for um, you know, women business owners, you name it, um, you want to make sure that you are bringing together the best team and so, you know, being a woman chief of staff, I mean, like Tamara, I don't know that I've ever really received, you know, something very overt um, as far as sexist goes. But, I'm, you know, I think that there is also, uh, in D.C., what I've learned is that there's still an um, underdeveloped sense of, of, I guess, acceptance that women are in these positions. So being out there about and about... There's never there, the assumptions are that you you know that your role is until you introduce yourself and present your title or it's presented mm-hmm. for you that there's you know, there's a sense of oh oh you're the chief <laughs> but and, and right. that's fine I think that mm-hmm. it's up to us to you know make sure that people start you know being out there that people know that they should you know they can ask those questions they can they can accept it. But, you know, one of the other pieces is being the only second Latina to hold this position of U.S. Senate Chief of Staff. That comes with a whole nother layer of, of assumptions. Can you give me an example? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation about diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And like I went through a minute ago, the layers of diversity, yes, it's heritage, ethnicity, but it's also, uh, you know, sex. It's um, uh, it's 
it's education, it's um, rural versus urban. There's a lot going there. And so there's a big conversation about diversity and the value it brings. It brings a huge amount of value to the table. Um, New Mexico is a majority-minority state, the first one. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, you know, we're accustomed to seeing women in power, Latinas in power. Michelle Lujan Grisham is a great example. Um, governor Martinez, who is now governor, who is the first Latina governor in the nation. And so we're accustomed to that. But I think that D.C. needs um, to uh, become more accustomed to that. And uh, so the amount of exposure that I can bring to that and, mm -hmm. the, and the elevation of that issue is important. And it, you know, it's mm -hmm. responsibility. Yeah. One fun story I love to remember about this question is I was interviewed by a New York Times reporter who was looking at Hillary's Senate office and career. And so one of her questions was, why did Hillary hire so many women? There were a majority of women on our staff, and I, my, I loved my answer, which is that well, she's an equal opportunity employer. So, <laughs> I, don't, so I don't think she tipped the scales. It's just the most qualified people for most mm -hmm. of our positions were women. And, um, and we were oh so comfortable with that, and I think the, the tr her track record shows that that was probably a fairly smart decision of who we hired. Yeah, and I, and I feel like Hillary Clinton, in all the incarnations, she's always had a really strong group of women, both advisors but also staff, whether it was in the Senate or as First Lady or, you know, when she was running for president, that, that's sort of a hallmark for her. That's not always true of all baby boom women. Right, some baby women who are uh, pioneers right, tend to have a lot of men working for them. But I was always struck by how many women worked, you know, for or advised um, on Hillary Clinton. You know, one thing that um, a lot of academic research has shown is that when you have more women, say, on the courts or in legislatures, uh, legislative outcomes are different. Right, that the, that priorities change. Um, so you could take the example of. You know, the NIH, most of its research was conducted on men, and when you started having women in Congress who said, wait, we fund, this is federal funding for research, we're only funding men, but women have a different set of health experiences, and you started seeing more funding for research on breast cancer and that sort of thing. Do you think women chiefs also have an impact? I, I'm not trying to pigeonhole like, oh, women chiefs must talk about women's issues. I don't mean that at all. But do you think having women chiefs helps shape the agenda also? My guess that it, it, that it does. I years ago did training for women candidates for Emily's List, so the, by definition, women. And having watched Mikulski come to the Senate because she came out after, I think, a class after Jay was selected from West Virginia, she brought issues related to assisted living and, um, you know, uh, what was it called when Medicaid forces you to be um, so poor? Right, that she gets a nursing home care, right? Right. right. Mm -hmm. So what I observed and observed my entire 22 years in the Senate is that there are, like Patty Murray, the, the mom in the tennis shoes, mm -hmm. et cetera, there are a number, and they're not always um, women's issues, because as we know, if we're trying to get women votes, we know they're not interested in everything being labeled a female issue. They're, right. they're interested in jobs and the economy and quality of education and you know the whole roster of what most people are interested in. But I did always observe that women had a way of especially being paid attention to because they were more likely to talk about their own personal experience of being in the sandwich generation. Mikulski mm -hmm. telling you know, pretty gripping story. She was a great storyteller, of course. 
but there there is a credibility because of the I think the the average woman's life experience um, that um, took on a lot of responsibility for the household the household's budget uh, you know being very very concerned about their children's education and um, that is an advantage so that it's not a card that you can automatically play but I but you know just often when a woman gets up and talks about an issue and refers to her own personal stories, mm -hmm. the room goes a little silent. Yeah, and I'm sure that's true. Um, I'm sure that's true. And I think that, like I said, research has demonstrated as there have been more and more you know, women in Congress, issues are dealt with in slightly different ways. And part of it is connecting it to real life. But on staff, I mean, from my perspective, working on a campaign, because you know, I help get people elected and then I don't get involved in what you, you guys do. <laughs> I always say that we don't have to worry about governing, so we can just propose things that sound good and you know, convey someone's values, but we don't actually have to worry about how you get it through Congress, for example. Yeah, that's why we didn't want you in the room. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but what I, what, I, what I find is that, especially if I'm working for you know, a male candidate and I'm one of the few women on the campaign team, People may talk about policy in a certain way, and I'll say, well, wait a minute, you know, for half the population, they experience it this different way. Um, and so it's, it's not so much that the candidate changes what they're talking about, but they understand the impact differently because they don't have that experience and they don't have a lot of women in the room talking about that experience. Can you see a parallel in, the, in that sort of when you think about policy and your bosses having that perspective? Yeah. Well. Of course. I mean, you have um, issues like uh, caregiving, you know, like mm -hmm. and issues like um, uh, decision making when it comes to medical services and um, items that might be perceived as very uh, woman focused. Uh, at the end of the day, there is uh, what Tara is saying is that, you know, we hear from our staff, we hear from constituents, and a lot of times uh, when you are visiting with families, it really can be the woman who's presenting the case, the, the, the head of the household or the person who is bringing in documents to work on some kind of a social security case or work on um, uh, benefits. And you're looking at a lot of times, uh, depending on a woman who is the head of the household or a woman who is, uh, you know, kind of the manager of, of the household who is, who's, who's helping you solve their problems or helping, you know, that challenge. Um, I think that there is a need for um, not being shy to say that, yeah, I mean, women do bring uh, forward, I think, a perspective that is very, that can be different in what you're even saying with regards to messaging or, or how do you convey uh, talking about um, uh, family medical leave policy if you don't have any examples of somebody mm -hmm. actually utilizing it. Uh, and yes, men utilize family medical leave, absolutely. And you have issues of you know paternity and maternity leave, and so. But there are there are very much um, areas where I think that just having that lens again mm -hmm. is uh, important. Yeah, the the recent healthcare uh, debate slash debacle, <laughs> depending on <laughs> where you sit, was interesting from that perspective because um, for a lot of Democrats, the focus was on 
loss of coverage under the Republican bill, and obviously that's an incredibly important issue, people losing insurance for many, many reasons. But for many uh, people who have employer-based insurance, um, issues of covering prescription drug costs or being having a, say, a, a child with a chronic illness and dealing with a lifetime cap, and it's almost always the mom <laughs> who is, you know, managing that care and knows exactly how much, that, how much she has to pay a month for those prescription drugs. And so while, again, I, I think the focus on cover, of covering an insured is, is critical for many, many reasons, you know, I, I sort of felt like we were missing the boat a little bit by not talking about people's lived experience of people who have employer-based insurance who would not be affected by, you know, would not be affected by uh, by subsidies not going to the state exchanges, that sort of thing. And it's those kinds of perspectives I feel like I bring sometimes to the campaigns that I that I work on. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, part of what I want to do here is inspire women uh, <laughs> to get involved in politics and. Um, you know, you both had different routes to getting to being a chief of staff in the Senate. Um, do you have any advice for anyone who might think they want to work on the Hill? Well, for starters, um, sometimes anything that touches Congress is called political, and um, but you know, policy, public service, political are all cousins of the same concept. And to go and sort of a, to to get to what I would advise is the reminder or as, as the realization that I've had ever since I've been hiring for 30 years here in Washington is the amount of young people that want to go into any of those arenas, whether working in a congressional office or a campaign or a nonprofit organization, a cause, I'm sure for you also, just mm -hmm. they, they, I have not seen that cynicism that everybody has said means that nobody wants to serve or no one, I mean, look at the numbers of people who are applying to Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or any form of national service. So my universal view is that um, please women, we, we've covered the reasons why we need more women members of Congress, we need more women in the judiciary, we need more elected officials at every level who are women, we need this country to get over what Germany and India and Israel for some reason and now mm -hmm. the UK um, swallowed easily, which is that the chief of state, of course, could be a woman. Um, and I think, like you said, the research shows, and I bet our own life experiences, I know mine has shown that women off, you know, women are more likely to not see compromise as a dirty word or four-letter word. And they're more likely to be, as we see in Susan Collins and searching for the, the next alternative or the compromise or whatever. So we need more women in, in all positions. And I would say to young women, sign up, come on in, you know, do your part and you will be infected. And then you will build your skills and whether it's the policy route or the hardcore mechanical route. My sense is that in, in the hardcore political sphere campaigns, so let's say the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee or being an actual campaign, that's where there seems to be a real paucity and a lack of women. So you don't have that many women who have gotten to their senator's office by having run his or her campaign. Um, we obviously have the big ones that we know about, Stephanie Shriak that now runs Emily's List, and ran campaigns, Mindy Myers that runs the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. Now, they were great you know, campaign warriors. Mm -hmm. But I'd go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that there are two paths, the non-traditional path and of, that I took and, of course, the, the traditional path of, of uh, you know, 
being a young person and coming to DC, uh, you know, both are really important because um, what you get with um, folks who are ta who take the chance of actually getting involved, whether it's on the Hill, um, in government, um, as a public servant within their states, or in uh, nonprofits, I think that it's really important to have women, to have um, uh, a diverse group of, of candidates come in. Uh, you know, you, you, you're, if you don't have people around the table, again, if you don't have people around the table, and that means in the Senate chambers, in the House chambers, as your consultants who um, have the, if they have all the same experience, you're going to get a really bad decision. And uh, so for, for women who are thinking about making the move and coming to DC and uh, getting involved um, or running for office, they should do it. Mm -hmm. I really do. I know that it's, it's easy for me to say because I've never run for office. But you know, I think that there is an opening now and a in and an energy uh, around women candidates mm -hmm. and uh, to really uh, support them and hear from them because uh, they really, I think, we saw the Mav the, the Mavericks in the Senate this recent um, go around right, with the uh, <laughs> yeah, with yes. uh, Senator Murkowski and mm -hmm. Senator Collins. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think it's sage advice because one of the things we talked about on an earlier podcast is that the problem with electing women is not that they can't get elected, that they don't run. And I would say the, the same thing is probably true in politics writ large, is that you just have to do it and work your way up um, and you can be successful. So this is you're an inspiration, both of you, and thank you so much for participating in this podcast. Thank you, Anna. Thanks. Fun to be with you. You've been listening to That's What She Said a podcast by women in politics about women in politics. Please make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook at She Said Paul Pod and stay tuned for our next episode. Talk to you later.